Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon. And in today's episode, we're talking with Bryce McBeth. Bryce has consulted with uh, just a range of really large companies, companies like Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Kraft, Orbitz, and he's worked with them to help improve their marketing performance. And all of that experience told him that there really needed to be an agency that was really specialized in conversions for those types of companies. So he created REAP Marketing in September 2009. Now, Bryce eventually took everything that he'd learned from working with all of these companies and all of his strategies for conversion, and he started his own now successful multi-million dollar e-commerce company called StandishSalonGoods.com. And he's used that as a place to put his ideas into play for himself. So he's eating his own dog food. Everything you're going to hear from him today is stuff that he's doing, which is something I love. And, uh, and he's also used that as a way to experience his own agency from the perspective of his clients. And he wrote about this entire journey in his book, Salon Cheers Don't Sell Themselves. And he's also the creator of the Infinite Conversions Workshop Program, which I can't wait to hear a little bit more about, which is a one day workshop designed to get businesses kickstarted and, uh, that gives them over a hundred ideas for optimization of their online presence. So Bryce, welcome to the unstoppable CEO podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it, it's great to have you on. We know, we've known each other for uh, a couple of years now, I think. And, um, and I always love the insights that you bring to things. You think about things a little bit differently and, and I know that you're going to bring that today. So I'd like to start just by understanding how you got started in, in business, what what really drove you to, to want to start your own business? Yeah, well, as you said, um, you know, I, I started my career at IBM, um, helped build a tool that measured behavior on a website. It was sort of Google Analytics before Google Analytics was invented. Um, and it was back in the day where uh, a lot of companies had home pages and not full-blown websites yet. Uh, nobody really kind of understood the uh, or there's few people, I guess I should say, that understood the potential of websites and the whole uh, marketing mix. So, you know, a lot of companies that we approached kind of had this question of like, well, why do I need to know how many hits I get on my website? Uh, so, went through the whole evolution of that and um, the pro proliferation of the, the internet and, um, you know, left at some point to go try my hand on the, on the excuse me, the client side. And I uh, quickly became frustrated with the agency world with all, all the, the buzz and the exposure and the branding efforts. A lot of that, you know, worked. A lot of it worked really well. And it was a lot of fun. But ultimately, I was accountable to produce results. So uh, spending money on buzz and exposure and branding was not the name of the game for me. So uh, after having optimized our own conversions and leading a team through that effort, I realized that there was sort of this missing piece in the agency world. So really uh, my quest to start a business was more out of a passion to fulfill the, the void. Um, I really felt like Reap at the time was sort of in the blind spot of a lot of agencies. Um, so uh, I, I didn't I resisted the urge to even call it an agency for the first couple of years that we were in business just because I was so averse to the, even the term. But uh, that was really sort of the driving uh, thing that got me into business. Well, I love that. And, and, uh, you know, knowing what I know about the agency world, you're absolutely right. I mean, most ignore the, 
even even the the thought of measuring results and and I love that you're bringing that uh, there are more doing it now but I know you were on the cutting edge of that um, you know back in, in 2009 when you started I'm really excited to hear more about what you're doing uh, with REAP but first I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how you've become unstoppable we all run into roadblocks in business and when we run into them we've all got different approaches for getting around them different types of thinking or habits that, that we've cultivated and I'd, I'd love to hear from you what one or two of those really key habits or ways of thinking have have been for you that have helped you overcome those challenges that, that come up in running a business yeah, so I've got, uh, I'd say over time, I've either developed or borrowed a handful of uh, different skills or techniques. Um, so a couple off the top of my head that uh, I think are, are ones that I rely on most is, you know, I think the, you know, one of the setbacks all of us face at some point is attrition. And you think of like losing clients or losing revenue. And that certainly can be painful for a very real business reason. For me, over time, having attrition within my you know, employees is always really painful because you also have the emotional aspect of that. And yeah, it's painful to have to rehire somebody else and train them up. But you know, I don't know about you, but for me, I really sort of take that as a personal blow. What was it that I wasn't able to provide this person to, to give them a fulfilling place to work and to learn and continue to grow and uh, exercise the skills they have while building new skills? You know, it's, sometimes that can be really hard to, to kind of deal with. So um, one of the uh, techniques that I, that I use and it sort of evolved is this concept that I have of, you know, I, I do not, in most cases, I don't believe in a, a list of pros and cons. Basically, what I do is make a list of best case, worst case scenarios. Um, so the first thing that I do in a scenario like that is try to compartmentalize my emotions. And I'll literally write down all the things that I'm feeling so that I can stare it in the face and know what, what it is that I'm dealing with as a, as a human being. So at least I know what part of the facts uh, are things that I, you know, really have really more about like what's stirring me up as a person and stare it in the face, put it in a box and kind of put it on the shelf so I can move on to the business aspect of the, of the setback. When I'm dealing with a setback, what I do is I literally make a list of, the best possible things that could come out of that situation and the worst possible things that can come out of that situation. Inevitably what happens is there's not very many bad things that can come out of that other than having to start over and hire somebody else or, you know, go get a new client. I mean, that's just part of the business anyway. It's really not that bad of a setback when you really think about it. Um, but what it, the opportunities that it gives you, you start to discover that you can re completely reinvent the position. You can hire up, you can, you know, you can kind of look at it from the perspective that you, you know, gave that person an opportunity to go find a bigger and better opportunity uh, while um, doing things and mo making modifications to your own business to help your own business grow. You know, so I'd say the first thing that is recurring to me is this concept of, you know, compartmentalizing your emotions and then outlining and literally writing out best case versus worst case scenario instead of making up pros and cons. So I think that applies to other things other than just sort of um, losing clients or employees. But I think that's one that, you know, I think we deal with most as business owners. Uh, I was just going to say, I think that's, that's actually a, a fantastic approach because, you know, even though we're running businesses, we're all supposed to be sort of these big, you know, tough business people that always make rational decisions. The truth is 
we're all a slave to our emotions to the extent that we allow it by doing what you're describing. You, you are really separating yourself from the emotion and then you're allowing your rational self to sort of examine the emotion independently and, and hopefully you make a better decision. Um, you know, from, I think that's great. Sometimes those emotions can also make you, you know, kind of a hard and bitter person too. So as much as you, it helps you sort of like step out from a, almost from a third party perspective and see yourself from a different, you know, uh, see your emotions from an outside perspective. And yeah, as you said, sort of uh, understand it and really kind of digest it and, and kind of move on from it. So yeah, and you, you mentioned having, you know, this experience where, where people leave and I've been through that more times than I can count. And in all of the, the CEO peer groups I've ever been in, the number one challenge that everybody brings to the table is it's all around people issues. It's people, you know, it's either hiring as a challenge or you've got people leaving or you got to fire people, you know, for, for the decisions and the behavior that they're exhibiting. And, um, and, and I've been through a lot of the struggle that you talk about where you feel like at, at some point you've failed. I, I always looked at it like that. Like if, if somebody came in and wasn't a right fit, that was on me. Mm-hmm. Because somewhere in our process of selecting, there was a gap. There was something we didn't identify. And, uh, you know, or if somebody left because they felt they weren't heard or somehow they weren't a part of the team, you know, again, that was that. I've seen people take it two different ways. So I've seen business owners just sort of say, ah, you know, their person, you know, that person's no good and kind of write them off. Like you're either with us or against us, but I think the better approach, and and I like what you've brought up here. I think it's important is to be a little bit introspective with it, you know, and say, well, okay, what does this tell us about, you know, me as a leader and us as a company that we can improve upon? So you actually turned it into a learning experience, which is is really valuable. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of us get into business because we have a lot of confidence that we can make a, a big change, and then you have a setback like this that, as you say, makes you feel like a failure. So that does nothing good for your confidence, right? So it's hard to keep pushing forward, and you certainly, certainly puts you in the wrong mindset. But if you can really kind of outline what those best case scenarios and best case outcomes are, and you see yourself actually starting to achieve those, then you really just it starts to amplify your confidence and and uh, makes you better able to deal with setbacks and adversity and attrition like that in the future, both with you know, clients and employees or you know, anything. So. That's great. And you said you had a, a second uh, tip or idea as well. You know, I think back on, you know, the, the two companies that uh, I own and, and both of them gone through a couple of different state of transitions. Actually, I feel like we're always in a state of transitions, but a couple of milestones were repeated across both of them. And there was this concept of, you know, obviously just running out of time. There's not enough time in the day to be an individual and a, and a family guy and own a business or two businesses or three businesses or whatnot. Uh, there's just not enough time in the day. So there's a couple, you know, mindsets and, and uh, habits that I've developed that uh, has helped with that. I think uh, I was talking to a, a peer of mine about the the journey of you know building a business and then it becomes starting to, to show kind of success and then hitting this glass ceiling because you feel like you just don't have enough time to to act on all the opportunities that exist 
And uh, so I asked him like how he was breaking through these milestones. And uh, he said, you know, I, I just, I don't do work. You know, he had this realization that uh, in order to be a CEO, he could no longer do actual work. So that sort of blew my mind at the time. But then, you know, I realized and I came to terms with that and realized that I kind of had to like fire myself as an employee and rehire myself as a CEO. And that sort of changed things because as a CEO, your job is to provide opportunities, right? Provide opportunities to the company, provide opportunities to your employees, provide opportunities to your clients and exchange of value. And all the, the exchange of value has to be balanced on all fronts. So, you know, trying to understand the, the marketplace and, and provide opportunities along the way for everyone and keep everything in balance is really your job, not to actually do the actual um, work. So, you know, once I, I had to realize that twice with the, you know, both of my companies, um, but that was, a, that was a big breakthrough because it helped me, you know, free some time up to think big. Um, and I found also that it took, took less time you could depend on other people to do it. And all of a sudden, you know, not that I, I would say that I have a lot of free time on my hands, but I can certainly manage my time better and I have better quality time when I'm not at the office. So that time I view as an exchange of, of, uh, of value to me as well. It's a form of compensation is what it is. Right. Um, but part of going through that process was this realization that, uh, uh, email is evil. <laughs> and by doing email all day, I see people doing email all day, even other business owners and, and things like that. Anytime you can email them at any point, they'll, they'll reply back to you in a minute. And I certainly think that's, there's a lot of great things about that. But for me, I felt like, you know, email, I was just responding to a bunch of stuff and keeping the balls in the air. I wasn't truly like thinking big or innovating anything. You can't innovate when you're just responding to, to 100 or 200 or 300 emails a day. You know, once you have this mindset shift that you're the CEO and not the employee, then it sort of frees you up from that. And I spend my time more now, you know, out in the field, talking to clients, talking to my employees, talking to friends, talking to whoever I got to talk to. To me, it feels like much more of a sort of socializing my business more than it does anything. I feel like I, I, I feel like I just don't work, but in reality, it creates all those opportunities for everyone because inevitably I come up with new ideas, uh, get new clients, uh, find new people to hire, uh, things like that. So, uh, so the first step there, I think, is uh, the mindset shift of kind of getting out of the, the day-to-day uh, to work on the business, not in the business, and then learning to manage your time uh, within that uh, framework so that you're not just responding to the crisis de jour emails and things like that, but you really create some unstructured time to think bigger and do things that help grow, truly grow the business. Sure. Now, when you started, uh, when you started the agency, were you kind of working in the business, delivering the service, or you were doing some of the consulting when you started out? Um, a little bit. You know, I'd say I certainly was quick to get help. Um, with a lot of the actual work, but I think, yeah, the, the one-on-one, you know, consulting on a daily basis and then, you know, even, you know, managing a group of employees can be very, you know, time consuming. Uh, and not that I'm not good at that. I, I think I'm actually quite good at that, but there's just not, like, still there's not enough time in the day to you know, manage 25 or 30 um, people who are doing that for you know, 30 or 50 clients. So 
you know, one of the things I, you know, I, that I did one as soon as I could was hire someone who could manage the operations. And we sort of joke like I'm in charge, but I'm not in control. She's, <laughs> she's in control. Yeah. So that person for me is uh, Landon Martin, which is our uh, vice president of operations and one of my uh, junior business partners. And that was part of the, the, the process of achieving that mindset. Yeah, that's awesome. I, in, in my first business, we got to the, the stage where we had a similar setup. And when you get there, um, and, and that's not something that, you know, a lot of business owners think that, that you just sort of evolve into that. It's a really conscious decision. And you can make it at any stage, really, in the business. Um, and, and when you do, now that, that just opens up so much opportunity because you're freed up. And what I see in, in a lot of uh, the firms that we talk to is that, you know, you got somebody who got into and started a business because they really loved what they're doing, you know, in, in professional services, when we're doing this kind of high level stuff for clients, oftentimes it's because we're passionate about it and the firm gets stuck because the, the leader is doing the work all the time. And all of the opportunity, as you've pointed out, it, it all comes from other people. And, and once you can come to that realization and get out there and just focus on forming those relationships, you know, just incredible doors open up. So uh, congratulations on getting there. And thank you for sharing that. I think that's a really critical insight. So we're going to take a, a quick break and we're going to be right back with Bryce and we're going to put him on the spot. We're going to ask him what he's most excited about in business right now. Hang on. Hi, this is Steve. I hope you're enjoying this interview. We've got more to come in a minute, but what I'd love for you to do right now is rate this podcast. Leave us a review, rate us on iTunes. It'll really help others discover the podcast and help us help other CEOs, other business leaders become unstoppable. So if you go to unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes, you can find instructions there and links that will take you right to where you need to go to review the podcast. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. All right, welcome back. We're with Bryce Macbeth, and uh, he is the CEO of REAP Marketing and the founder of StandishSalonGoods.com. And he's the creator of the Infinite Conversions Workshop Program. Now, Bryce, you've got a ton of stuff going on. Um, and I know you also just uh, wrote a book not too long ago. So I'd really like to find out what is happening in your world right now that you're most excited about. So I'd say the thing I'm most excited about right now is this concept that I've developed called the conversion precedence framework, which basically describes the five key factors that I believe influence people to, to purchase from your company. Um, so I'm teaching this through my workshops and webinars and um, eventually, hopefully we'll get back to, to writing a book about it. But, you know, as I discussed with my journey and, you know, arriving at the agency, the way that we do a lot of our marketing optimization and conversion optimization is through what's called A-B testing or multivariate testing where, you know, two people have, you know, two different beliefs or hypotheses or opinions about how the website should be designed, you know, typically uh, the, the pecking order sort of defines how the website's going to look, right? Mm -hmm. So the highest paid person in the organization is the one that gets their way and the website looks like how that person wants it to, to look. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> That's how you get great results. 
Yeah, that, well, that drives me crazy. Even even for myself, when when people act on on my ideas just because I said it was an idea of mine, but it doesn't work. You know, come to find out, not all my ideas are really that great ideas. <laughs> so, um, or actually, they're all great ideas. People just don't respond to them as I expect them to respond. Um, but uh, when I get a little bit of uh, pushback and hey, let's test it and see if people respond favorably, more favorably to your idea rather than what's already on the website, then that just sort of warms my heart because now we have a way to statistically prove which idea actually generates more uh, or better business results than the other one. So the thing about A-B testing is you have to have a large uh, audience or a big pool of people to sample in order to determine with some statistical significance which version works better than the other one. So not every company is a good candidate for A-B testing because some people, quite frankly, just don't have enough traffic on their website. So after having run you know, hundreds, if not thousands of uh, A-B tests, even hundreds of even my own A-B tests on my own e-commerce site, I've discovered that some types of tests have a greater impact than other forms of tests. So the proverbial A-B test that you think of when you think of A-B testing, if you know anything about A-B testing, mm -hmm. is you know, a blue button versus a red button. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you want to click on more, right? Usually, you know, that might have a small, you know, a small impact. Usually it has a lot to do with, like, my momentum or sent to the site. But usually the color of the button has very little to do with people's, you know, conscious choice to purchase from your website. So the conversion, back to the conversion precedence framework, I promise I'll answer your question. <laughs> The conversion precedence framework is a framework that I've developed to help explain what the hierarchy is of that decision-making process when people are interacting with your website. So for these smaller and mid-sized clients who are looking to optimize their website but don't have the uh, pool of people to do really good, rigorous, and uh, A-B tests on an ongoing basis, the framework helps give them some, a very objective way to look at their website and decide which uh, items should be changed or what items need to be added because they're purely absent. So a lot of times when we build a website, we build based on a list of requirements and agency reacts to things that you want and other websites that you like or they get a template and modify it, uh, which is all that's great. But a lot of times we don't go through the full uh, thought process of what it is that people are going to have to see in order to consciously choose to buy from your website. So conversion precedence framework really kind of uh, helps explain that that buyer process and helps give clarity, especially these smaller mid-sized clients, how they should, should objectively look at their website to get better results from the traffic they already have. Yeah, well, and, and that's so critical. Um, a lot of the, the folks who, who will likely uh, hear this podcast are going to be in a situation where maybe they don't have the, the tens of thousands of of monthly visits that you would need to get a real A-B test and, and prove it. But that doesn't mean that the thinking that goes into it isn't valuable. We, I know with a lot of the clients we work with on the referral processes, we're working with their message or we're working with a particular method. They'll come and say, Oh, I got this idea. What do you think? I, said, I don't, I don't know. Sounds like a good idea to me, but let's go see what the market thinks because it's the customers and prospects that, that get all the votes. We don't get any votes. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I love the way that you've, you've broken this down and I'd love to hear the, the, the different parts of the framework because, you know, you've got to have a way to put together 
whatever your marketing is, whether it's online or offline, however you're doing it, you've got to have a way to put it together quickly and go see if it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, until you do that, you know, we're all just sort of sitting around kind of BSing each other. And, and as you say, the, the guy with the highest rank in the room yeah. wins the day, but often that's not the best answer. No, that's usually not the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of, it's scary. People think, um, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is inside marketing uh, speak to, that we're not supposed to be sharing with the general public. But I mean, truthfully, um, having seen a lot of big marketing campaigns by really big name people flop, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have anything. I mean, you can know generally that these are the things that are likely to work, but until you put it in, in front of a prospect, it's it's completely unpredictable. And, well, you think about Super Bowl ads, right? When people come uh, in, they after Super Bowl, they've got their list of favorite commercials. They don't say that they're their favorites. They say that they were the best commercials, which I take usually take issue with because they're actually not the best commercials. It might be the most entertaining or the most favorite commercials, but you know, a lot of times that it might be a, you know, if you take a, an average beer commercial, right? There's a, um, probably a lot of branding that go on, goes on there. And over time, uh, uh, clearly it, it works to some extent, but you know, a lot of times people come in laughing at a particular commercial and then you ask them, well, do, you know, do you remember what, what that was advertising and they can't remember the product or the brand. And then even if they can, you ask them, uh, well, have you actually gone out and bought that product because you're so compelled by watching that commercial? And the answer is usually, no, I just thought it was really funny. So maybe that wasn't the best commercial. Was it? <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, to, to me, the only way to measure that is, is uh, when you look in the bank account, is it bigger than before you ran the, the ad, you know, and you can do that if you're in Heiser Bush on a giant scale and you can do that on a tiny little scale if you're running a small business. So yeah. um, but that's the measurement. Yeah. Well, cool. So tell us a little more about this, this framework you've developed. What are the different components of it? Yeah, so we go we go into into it in, in pretty great detail, you know, in the workshops, and um, uh, I do plan to to write a book on it here uh, pretty soon, you know, chock full of examples and case studies and things like that to sort of back the theory up, um, because it's definitely not just you know an idea; it's an idea based on you know a lot of history and, and uh, experience. So, the, but the elements basically are, you know, when we do, we think of A-B testing or website design and marketing, you know, the things that we can get our head around, you know, are the design. Well, I think the buttons should go up here. We should go above the fold because people don't like the scroll. They overgeneralize. That's the other thing we do as marketers is we overgeneralize. Well, people don't like the scroll. Well, people need to see the button above the fold. I'm, t- I'm here to tell you, Steve, that it's, 2000, it's 2017 now. Is that right? I think so, yeah. People, if people want to buy your product, they'll find the button. Yes. Yes, they will. So there's very few people left out there that uh, need to learn how to use your website and will can't figure it out. So they leave the website and buy it somewhere else. But the, so the order of precedence goes like this. There are items that I call resistance items that either make it easier for people to buy or buy online or navigate your website or, or whatnot or it makes it more difficult, right? So the layout, the, the interface, the colors, the fonts, things like that. And then within those resistance items, there's things that are sort of out of your control, you know, people's you know, uh, buyer anxiety or their financial situation, what they've got going on at home, or what other people are helping them make the decision. Those are sort of out of your control. So what trumps resistance is the offer. And the net of it is, 
you know, I can, um, you know, back to my point about if people want the product, they'll find out where the button is, right? So I can incentivize people to bear with my awfully designed website if I incentivize them enough to act on, act on my offer. Above that, you know, people aren't willing to find any value. There's no value in the offer unless they are clear in their mind what they're going to get in exchange for that offer, whether they're still giving you money or uh, if it's free, but they have to put their time or personal information into a website, that's, there's still some trade of information or time or whatnot. So it has to be clear. The third item is clarity in the product or service that they're getting from the company before they actually find any value in the offer, which will help push them through the, the resistance items on the website. So above the clarity in the actual product and service is this concept of credibility. Like even if you have a great product or service, but you have, uh, a, you know, the first thing that comes up when I look up your company or you as a person is a ripoff report followed by 800 reviews of people giving you one star on Google and Facebook because they think you're a con artist or whatnot. And all of a sudden, your your sort of uh, awareness goes up, and uh, you're much much less willing to buy that product at any price if you don't believe in that person. Uh, and then the last item that trumps all of it is this concept of uh, these high impact variables, which uh, there's several things in the in the list, but you know, ultimately, if you have a really well designed website with an incredible and screaming offer. Uh, it's ultra clear what they're going to get for this amazing offer on your amazing website and you're total, totally believable and people have given you these glowing uh, reviews and testimonials. Um, but there's a hundred other people that do exactly what you do. Then you're back to the average 1% conversion uh, likelihood, right? But if you have something that's ultra exclusive and you can't get that product or service anywhere else, then your rate of conversion, if, and that's what people are clear on that they like and they want, all of a sudden your conversion rate goes from a 1% to a likely 100%, right? Right. Um, so the order is, <coughs> excuse me, there's a few other things uh, in that list of high impact items. The exclusivity is just sort of like one example. Sure. But the order of things are resistance is sort of bottom of the total pole. Offer trumps resistance. Clarity trumps offer credibility trumps clarity and then high impact items uh, trump all of it. So ideally you have all of it. You have a, an amazing website with an amazing offer, super clear product or service, uh, credible company or person and uh, some ultra high impact items that make it a total no brainer. That's a great way to, to kind of break down the thinking of it and, and a great framework for anybody that that's, um, you know, looking to improve their results on the web and, and honestly, um, in, in any of their, their marketing and communication, I think all of those things really play in. Um, and, and I didn't, I, I really didn't hear you say, you know, beautiful design or killer graphics or the perfect photo. Um, it, it really, you, you've gone a, a level deeper than, than what, frankly, 90% of the, the folks who are, claiming to, to be experts at web marketing are doing. And, and I love that. That's awesome. Well, to give away one of the, the top takeaways of uh, my book, Swan Chairs Don't Sell Themselves, you know, we went, uh, we viewed it 
as in, you know, like, like you said, we viewed launching the company as an opportunity to eat our own dog food, experience our agency from the client side, also a chance to sort of experience our own service and see if, it, if we could use the service to actually build a successful company. Uh, and it worked, but not, it didn't work without some hiccups along the way. One of the pitfalls that we fell into early was, hey, we're a marketing agency. We've got to be able to show, we've got to be able to flex our muscles here a little bit and kind of show off a little bit, show our skills. This is going to be our bell cow account. So we have to have a really pretty website. We knew that wasn't the right answer. We <laughs> so, um, so in my book, I talk about how, you know, uh, it got us our first few sales and it kind of got us going, but we knew there was more to it than uh, what the successes we were having. Uh, it just wasn't meeting our expectations. So ultimately, after some research and talking to some would-be clients, um, and I talk about the process of sort of this discovery in the book, but ultimately we decided to buy a uh, $300 website template to replace this beautifully designed website. And our conversions literally went up 400% wow. over. So the track record of several months and then leading into the next day consistently throughout the rest of the year, I uh, had a 400% increase in conversion. So, and I, I got to admit like that template was atrocious. You know, <laughs> our designers really hated us for it. And they asked us what, what we were thinking mm -hmm. to really help our portfolio other than uh, to the extent that we we're able to to brag about how much better the results were, and ultimately that's that's the name of the game anyway. So, did yeah, I mean absolutely, and and I mean congratulations for having the guts to do that. I don't think there are very many agency owners that would have the guts to to scrap a site they've designed and go with a three hundred dollar off the shelf template. Um, but you know, you had the courage to to go after the results and and not just go after, you know, the, the sort of ego play there. So that's fantastic. Yeah, being, being transparent about it as well. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, that, that takes huge, huge guts to, to be able to put that out there. I mean, uh, but again, that's why, you know, that, that's a, a great example of why somebody would want to work with you because you're not going to, you're, you're not going to sugarcoat it. You're going to, you're going to give them the, the truth and, and, uh, deal in reality rather than in, in fantasy, which is a lot of what's, what's done in, uh, you know, in, in web marketing and in all marketing. Um, and so, um, you know, congratulations on, on taking that path. Now, um, you've mentioned the book a few times. Uh, the book is not about salon chairs, so you don't have to have an interest in salon chairs, right? Right. So, I actually, uh, subtitled it recently had to, on the second version of it, went back and subtitled it, you know, book for conversion rate optimization seekers. So they, so marketers knew they were in the right place, but uh, yeah, it's called Salon Chairs Don't Sell Themselves. And it's about our journey and hiring our own agency to build an e-commerce site and turning it into a successful business. Um, so it talks about the pitfalls that we either encountered, encountered and overcame or uh, circumvented by, um, you know, by using practices that we preach. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's written from the perspective of a startup, but I think all the, the concepts and lessons and takeaways apply to a company of any size. Um, so, you know, even when I talk on the first chapter about like just getting started sometimes can be a huge milestone to, to overcome for, you know, a bigger company that's already established, <laughs> you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be so literal 
sometimes they've got an idea or a campaign or a new product or something that they're having trouble just getting it done and getting it out there. You know, a lot of the lessons can be very analogous to, to any company, any size, any stage. So yeah, talk about all the different pitfalls we fell into or avoided and what we did to sort of overcome them. Cool. Yeah. It sounds like a, a great resource and, and learning tool for people who are looking to improve what they're doing uh, on, on the web. So how can they, how can people who are listening find you and how can they get the book? Yeah. So um, a couple, a couple things. So we talked about the agency a little bit for, for someone, you know, looking for help with marketing optimization or conversion rate optimization, AB testing, things of that nature, you know, making, you know, getting better results from, uh, traffic that you already have on your website. Um, that company is called Reap Marketing. You can find that at reapmarketing.com. That's R-E-A-P. Yep. R-E-A-P marketing.com. Perfect. Um, and then I have, uh, so uh, I have my own uh, brand that, you know, that we've launched the book under. So brycebeth.com is where you can go to buy the book. And uh, it's also where I book, you know, occasional speaking engagements. And we have a lot of uh, webinars and workshops, as you mentioned to help people and help companies kind of understand the conversion process and optimization process and learn more about it. So it's about you know, education, empowering people to do better marketing instead of mystifying it from the agency side. Bricemeetbeth.com is where you can find the book. And uh, we did set up an offer code for, for your audience. You plug in unstoppable as the offer code, then you can get the book for a dollar. That's awesome. Thank you for doing that. And uh, I hope uh, folks listening will go take advantage of that because I, I think they'll get a ton out of the book from a number of different angles. I mean, certainly there's what you guys learned as you went through the conversion rate optimization process, but just the thinking going into becoming your own customer to see, you know, what is this really like on the other side of the table? Um, I, I just, I think that's a, a fantastic approach. So um, I, I really recommend everybody listening, go and get the book. Um, you know, it'll, it'll be a, a good investment of a buck. So uh, take, take Bryce up on his offer. Bryce, it's been fantastic having you on. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And I have one final question for you that I like to ask everybody because I learn a lot from this. So I, what I want to know is what are you reading right now? What, what's the book that's kind of at the top of your reading stack? Uh, okay. So, well, I just, I just bought and started, um, the everything store, which is about Jeff Bezos and, and the Amazon, uh, journey. Uh, I haven't gotten far enough into that to talk a whole lot about it. I gotta admit that what I'm deep into right now is a book called, uh, getting the love you want. So tomorrow is my wife and I are celebrating our 15th. Uh, wedding anniversary. That's awesome. Congratulations. In the mix of, uh, thank you, by the way, but uh, in the mix of, you know, business and kids and being in the right neighborhood with the right house and just kind of keeping up with life, you know, I think we've sort of developed patterns in our life. You, nobody, uh, especially business owners, you know, very confident uh, business owners, seldom talk about um, the battle that they're facing that you know nothing about, right? For me, I feel like, you know, there's all these stresses that people deal with and uh, leads to sort of like patterns and sort of just mailing it in uh, either at work or home or whatnot. So um, you, other people seem either really perfect or they get a divorce and nobody wants to talk about the, the, the challenge and the things you have to go through to break through your own milestones 
you know, at home with your spouse or your, your loved ones. Right. So I think the book gives you an excellent perspective on relationships in general. It also gives you some really specific techniques uh, and exercises to go through to really uh, be more in tune with your spouse. And uh, for me, I found that a lot of the techniques can sort of transcend uh, marriage. So I don't know if you're looking for a business book answer, but uh, if you're looking for an honest answer, that's what I'm into. Yeah, right? That, that, that's all I actually, that's all I ever want is an honest answer from anybody yeah. that comes on because you know, honestly, that's how I find the next great book that I'm going to read. And, and I hope everybody listening gets that too. So one more time, the name of that book. It's uh, Getting the Love You Want by uh, Harville Hendricks. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I, got, I mean, I got to say it's, you know, uh, we're all into this, uh, you know, I assume that people are listening to your podcast or they've got business on their mind, you know, a large portion of the day. But ultimately, it's about something. It's about something else, right? It's about our relationship oh, yeah. with people. Yep. And what we do with our successes and how much fun we have um, uh, at work and at home, right? And the balance between those two. So I recommend it for, for anyone who has a relationship with another person of any, any degree. So I guess everyone <laughs> should uh, <laughs> this book. So. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we all get into business. Mo well, I believe we all get into business, not because we want to work really hard, <laughs> which is what it requires, but we we want the the promise of, of being an entrepreneur which is really about freedom um and oftentimes we don't create that and that impacts the people in our lives so i, I think that's a actually a fantastic business book because if those relationships crumble it, and i've seen this happen the business crumble yeah and uh and so they're they're very closely tied when, when you're working at this level so thank you again i appreciate that's a great share and uh bryce i look forward to talking to you real soon take care yeah, thanks, Steve. Had a good time. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes.